Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by APT Capital Group, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Before we get started, please make sure to head over to our website, aptcapitalgroup.com, and grab our free Passive Investor's Guide. Also, if you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with Kyle on our website as well. Join us at the Virtual Asset Management Summit on June 21st through June 27th. It's a seven-day content-packed event for multifamily operators and asset managers with over 1,500 attendees and over 20 amazing speakers. You will hear from top experts about topics such as construction management, KPIs, refinancing, investor relations, the capital stack, disposition, and so much more. Go to www.amsummit2021.com to grab your free ticket to become the best-in-class operator. Discover the best asset management strategies all in one place. We hope to see you there at the Virtual Asset Management Summit. All right, time to get into our show. Today, we have Brent Sprinkle joining us. Brent, welcome. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Very excited about this. Awesome. Well, before we head into the interview, here's a little bit about Brent. Brent has worked as a commercial real estate broker and investor in Los Angeles for two of the nation's top firms, Bricadia and Sperry Van Ness. Brent brings more than 20 years of experience and expertise in helping his clients achieve their goals of exchange, expansion, consolidation, and disposition. With more than 350 apartment buildings sold, his sales of commercial properties have exceeded $1.2 billion. Awesome. We can't wait to pick your brain through the lens of a broker in today's show. But first, can you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Sure thing. So I did not go to school to be a real estate broker, as most people can say themselves. I went to college for mechanical engineering, got out of school and got a job working for Hughes here in El Segundo, Los Angeles area. I was working on satellite payloads, so I helped put together the first DirecTV satellites, did that for about three years. Wasn't a very good engineer, as it turns out, and I got out of that industry, and a friend of mine suggested I look into selling apartment buildings because he'd bought a few, so I jumped right in. And I worked for a company called Sperry Van Ness for about 10 years and then switched over to Hendricks and Partners that later turned into Burcadia. So I've been in this business doing the same exact thing for about 22 years now. And starting around 2011 at the bottom of the last recession, I started buying a few little apartment buildings here and there. So build up a small portfolio and looking to obviously buy more buildings uh, when I can find deals that fit my criteria. And uh, here we are today. So the, the big thing is that I just wrote a book, Billion Dollar Portfolio, that comes out this week. And it's really the stories of the success stories of clients of mine that went from nowhere to having these billion dollar 
portfolios of commercial real estate, including apartment buildings. So that's really the premise for the entire book is how they did it. Awesome. Well, we hope to be one of those stories in a future book of yours, hopefully. So we're going to talk today about multifamily, but from a broker's perspective, the thing I'm actually curious about is how was volume in 2020 compared to the previous years? Obviously, we had COVID that hit. In some of the markets that we look in, volume was definitely down, but curious from your perspective how it was and then what the outlook is for 2021. So Brocadia is a national company and we're in pretty much every major MSA. And I was told that they were down about 20% in 2020 compared to 2019, which is pretty amazing. I can tell you that myself here in Los Angeles, I was off by about 50%. The reason being pretty much everything that was an escrow in March fell out for a variety of COVID related reasons. And there was about a four month period where buyers just really didn't know what to do. Stock market was collapsing. Lenders were pulling out. People were worried about where things were headed. But then around June, July, August, we managed to put a few deals together. So we vinked out a decent living last year, but not great. But we're optimistic for 2021, despite everything else that's happening or not happening in the world right now. Yeah, we actually had a deal drop out right in March as well. And it obviously slowed down our deal flow last year. So interesting. What about investor sentiment from a multifamily industry standpoint? You know, now we're eight, nine months into COVID through COVID. What's the investor sentiment in your market? Well, that's a great question and a very complicated one. At first in March, it was just absolute fear. The stock market completely collapsed as everyone remembers Everyone was just worried with apartment buildings about tenants paying rent, about being able to lease units, about being able to finance properties. March was absolutely terrifying. But a few months later, I think most landlords realized that the sky was not collapsing. Tenants were still in their units. Some were paying rent. Some weren't. But overall here in Los Angeles, most people are telling me that they're 95, 97% occupied, which is pretty amazing. And most people are telling me that they have 5 to 10% as far as collection issues. Now, some buildings and some neighborhoods are worse, but no one is freaking out. There's no desperate sellers. There's no blood in the street. We kind of were expecting that back in March, but it never happened. It seems like property owners are willing to suffer through this one. We don't see people dropping prices. We see people wanting to buy. But the issue that we're really having from a broker perspective here in Los Angeles is the sellers know what their property was worth a year ago, and they feel that this is a that this recession that we're in right now was caused by the economy directly related to them shutting it down, so that when it opens, people are optimistic that their values come back. So they want the same price their building was worth a year ago. Now the buyers say, "Hey, economy's bad. Tenants aren't paying rent. The rental market's down. We want a lower price." So we've got a big disconnect between seller's expectations and buyer expectations, and that results in difficult getting deals across the finish line. Is there anything you can do from your perspective to kind of bridge that gap? We're certainly seeing it in our markets. We look in Arizona and there's a huge disparity right now where you know people still want in that market below a four cap on the sales side, but now when you're purchasing, you'd love above a five cap. So is there anything that you can do from your perspective to kind of help bridge that? Our big goal is to educate sellers and just show them where all the competition is. If there's 30 apartment buildings on the market, they need to be priced in comparison. The reality is of those 30 buildings, 25 are probably not going to sell. So we have to show them these are the deals that sold and these are the deals that are not selling. And here's why. No one's buying a four cap. 
no one's buying a deal that the brokers are saying is a four and a half cap. But when you really look behind the curtain, you find out that a third of the units are empty and the broker is plugging in 2019 rents on those vacancies, which are not achievable today. So when you put in real rents or what they are in today's market, it's not a four and a half cap. It's not even a three and a half cap. Not to mention someone has to renovate those units. They have to wait two, three, four months to get them leased. Probably have to pay a leasing commission. It's not the joy that it used to be two years ago with vacancies. Two years ago, if you had a building that was a third empty, you'd have people flocking to buy it. They were excited about that. It was an opportunity. Now, vacancies are not really much fun. Lenders are also cognizant of it. And when there's buildings that have over you know, 5%, 10% vacancy, they're pulling back on the proceeds or they just don't want to fund it at all. Yeah. How have rents done? I mean, you said occupancy has stayed pretty solid over the last year. What about rents? Have you seen them come down at all in California? Absolutely, especially in the high-end coastal communities. So the Class A buildings are off 10 to 20%. Class B is off 5 to 10%. Class C is holding steady, but Class C has a bigger issue, rent collections. You have 1920s buildings in LA that are completely fully occupied, but you've got 30 some percent of the tenants are just not paying rent. The class A buildings, you don't have as much of issues with tenants not paying rent, but it hurts more when they don't because those are two, $3,000 rents. Um, but those tenants probably do have the means to pay. And at some point, the chickens will come home to roost and they're going to be held liable for the rent that they owe, hopefully. Whereas on the class C buildings, I mean, those, a lot of those tenants don't have two dimes to scratch together. So when this rent eviction moratorium is up, it's going to be very difficult to get those tenants to pay any rent back because they don't have any savings. So I'm not sure if that completely answered your question, but it's really interesting. It depends on the class of property. It depends on the lease rate structure. It's all across the board. Yeah. Since you mentioned it, what do you think or how do you think the eviction moratorium is going to end? Kyle, everyone's speculating over that. The reality is we feel that it's going to end a lot later than we'd like. A lot of people are enthusiastic that once the vaccine's been given out by June, tenants got to start paying rent again. I don't see that happening. We know how the governor feels about protecting the tenants. And they, we also know the bigger issue, especially in Los Angeles, nobody, no politician wants to be linked towards creating more of a homeless problem. Think about that. The last thing they want to do is have low-income families get evicted and wind up homeless and directly citing the politicians as their policies or putting them out of the street. So my gut feel is this goes out till January of 2022, the eviction moratorium, and is probably just going to end with either forgiveness of rent to a certain extent, tax credits, or we just basically having to take the tenants to small claims court consumer debt to get some sort of relief from them, long-term payment plan or something like that. We'll see how it plays out. The politicians are certainly thinking about this. They don't have a solution. They're certainly not going to just write a check to pay us. It's going to be a long, drawn-out process. So you have to have thick skin and deep pockets to get through this one. But at the end of the day, you're still going to own the real estate. The tenants are going to eventually have to start paying rent. We're going to be okay in the long run. Yeah. I mean, the more you kick the can down the road, the worse it's going to get, right? I'm on board with you. I think there it is going to extend throughout this whole year. And I also think that it's going to end with just forgiveness of that back pay and the delinquency. But, you know, it is what it is. Hopefully you've purchased right and, and you have some reserves there to take care of that. What are some ways that investors can actually reduce the risk of the eviction moratorium if they're going in buying now? 
If you're buying now, you just have to underwrite properly. Don't believe, and I'm a broker, uh, you know, you guys do brokers as well, it sounds like. So just keep in mind that brokers are always telling you that there's no collection issues. There are. There's definitely collection issues out there. Do your due diligence very carefully. Ask for proof of payment. What I mean by that is get canceled checks, get bank statements that show money coming in. You really want to check to make sure that the tenants are actually paying rent. And you want to see history of that because lots of sellers are pretending that this problem does not exist. So really check to make sure that it's happening. The next thing you want to do is just make the assumption that you're going to have 10% or more of the tenants not paying rent. And how are you going to get through that? Lastly, speak and be very open with your lender. Lenders oftentimes these days are waiting till almost the 11th inning to give you the bad news that they're pulling back on loan proceeds. That $2 million loan you thought you were going to get could turn into $1.7 million, and then you're stuck with a $300,000 financing shortfall. Make sure you do your homework on that because it could just wind up with an issue at the purchase with cash required. And it could wind up with an issue in operations. Lastly, and this goes without being said, make sure you have reserves. If you have an issue where 20% of your tenants are not paying rent, just make sure you have that around in your slush fund to pay that for the next upcoming six to 12 months of this. Yep. And the lender will help you with some of that with the COVID reserves that they're requiring nowadays, especially with Fannie and Freddie. But I think even in, in addition to that, you want to have even more emergency reserves. You have to. You have no choice. The lenders are requiring it or they're simply just cutting the proceeds so far back that they know that you'll be able to make payments even with a 50% occupied, 50% paying building. Yep. Tell us why California real estate or multifamily is still a good buy. I mean, so we've talked about already delinquency is increasing, rents are dropping, you know, the landlord tenant laws in California are really not favorable and continue to get more difficult for landlords. Why is California still a good buyer? What's your sentiment on, on the California real estate market? This is also a complicated question, but the reality is California is always going to have more appreciation on values on rents in other states. Obviously, we're going through a bit of a correction, a bit of a headache here, which should be hopefully short-lived. Tenants will come back, rents will stabilize, and then rents will start going up. There'll be cap rate compression once again, and you'll be happy that you bought here. Whereas if you take your money and you go to Texas or Idaho or somewhere else, probably not going to get much rent growth. The reason why people typically went to those markets was California was a four cap and they could go buy in you know, Phoenix or Houston at a six cap. So they didn't really care that much about appreciation. They were getting amazing rents and amazing cap rate. Well, now when those markets are four and a half caps and California's a four cap and there's not going to be much appreciation in Austin and other areas, it, it becomes a little bit challenging. So my pitch to buyers is, at least in California, you know at some point the rents are going to go up. You can't be that confident in other markets that you're going to see any rent growth. People tell me there's going to be rent growth in the South and Florida, places like that, but I'll believe it when I see it. It could just be right now people are moving there because of COVID. No one really knows. At some point, the rents are going to come back here in California. Yep. Any new strategies or, you know, when recessions hit, people tend to pivot and, and come up with new niches or strategies. Anything out there that you're seeing that uh, investors are doing that maybe isn't mainstream yet? I'd say the cash for keys approach. 
is mainstream. The cat was out of the bag about five years ago in that one. The new thing that people are doing is a whole ADU program, the accessory dwelling unit where they're turning a garage or carport or a storage room into another unit. That's a great idea, but it's often challenging because you're getting rid of valuable parking and turning that into a fairly marginal apartment for the most part. So, and it also requires a lot of cash. You need to really have a, a good amount to come in to do these. It's you know, $150,000 just to build a normal apartment, right? So you need to have a good source of equity for that. I'd say that's the new big thing. And people are certainly taking advantage of that because it's a way to turn a 10 unit building into 12 or 13 units. So that's a, a nice value add proposition there. Have you seen how those properties are going to be valued? I've seen a couple of my friends have actually done this on smaller properties, not really apartments, more single family homes. But the problem is it's so new that appraisers don't know how to value that additional unit. Have you seen that? Well, on a what I saw, a, what I would say a traditional apartment building, like a 10 unit apartment building or a 20 unit apartment building, it's just going to be viewed as another additional unit. It's also going to be exempt from rent control because it's brand new apartment. So I don't think that anyone's going to not count the income, not count the value. But certainly some people will look at the fact that parking has been removed. And now you went from a 20 unit apartment building with 20 spaces to a 22 unit apartment building with 16 parking spaces. So you're going to lose a few buyers because now it's less of a quality of a property. Plus the two units that you build are not going to be uh, deluxe two bedroom apartments with views typically. I do think it adds to the value. The more units, the more value. But those last couple of units you build are not going to be worth. If you're in a $300,000 neighborhood, those are probably going to be $200,000 units and it costs you, say, 100000 to build them. There is some value you're adding, but it's not insanely huge. Mm-hmm. So you've been in the industry for 20 plus years, broker side and investor side. What's the one key thing you've kind of learned to be a successful investor in multifamily? This is a long game. It takes patience. I tell people, especially younger people are coming into this business, you're not going to get rich overnight buying apartment buildings or buying any kind of commercial real estate. It takes a very long time. It's cash intensive. You need a lot of money to come in. There's no magic. It's not like the tech world where you could invent an app and all of a sudden become a billionaire. Everyone knows about this business. This has been around for thousands of years buying commercial real estate. So it's hard to really get creative with it. So you just have to just dig real deep, keep looking for deals that fit your criteria and just be patient. All the clients I wrote about in my book that have become billionaires did it one deal at a time. At some point, maybe they bought some other people's portfolios, but even those were one transaction. So to get there, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time, but very few people fail doing that. Yep. That's why I say it's not get rich overnight, but it is get very wealthy over a long period of time. And if you have the patience, it's definitely a great industry to be in. So what's the best way since you are a broker? One of the things that we struggle with, so we buy apartments in Arizona, you know, and it took us a long time to build a relationship with brokers. I mean, especially because we're out of state, right? So why are we the one that they should be building a relationship with? Any tricks of the trade on how newer investors can build a relationship with you kind of quicker and, and really get to see the real deals? I love this question because rarely do people ask it. And this is one of the most important questions. I tell everybody this. This is a business based on relationships. I get so many calls from people saying, it's probably every other day when in a normal market, hi, Brent, we have a ton of money. We're well capitalized. We want to buy buildings. We own buildings in this market and that market. We want to buy here. Put us on your list, call us, email us, send us everything. 
I never hear from him again. I get one phone call and then they're gone. I don't know what happens with these people, but it's hard to take them seriously. The people that get deals put in front of them are A, people that buy and they show up in comps and the, the brokers all see that they're active buyers, but it's also the people that follow up. I had a client about 15 years ago. He had a list of 20 brokers and every other day he called all 20 of them, said, hello, how are you? Got any new deals? You don't need a Rolodex of 100 or 200 brokers to call. You just need the top 10, 20, 30 guys. If that, you could probably have four or five and just keep in front of them, email them, call them. They're going to send you what they have, especially if they know that you're a closer and, not, and they're not going to waste their time. And lastly, if you buy a deal from a competent broker, when you go to sell it, give it back to them or at least give them a crack at it. Yep. I love that. We've got a list of 59 brokers between our two markets. I call them every three weeks just to catch up, build that relationship and, and see what kind of deals they have. And you know, we're the, we are the type of investor. If we buy a deal from you, we're going to sell the deal with you unless something you know gets derailed. But we definitely want to continue to build that relationship. So great advice there. Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions. Are you ready? Sure. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz, and we'll start the conversation. What is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? Oh, I love this. Google Earth, Google Maps. A, besides getting you to where you need to be, especially if you guys are buying out of town, you can jump on that app. It's easiest on a laptop or just a computer with a big monitor. And you can see what the entire neighborhood looks like. You can see the cars parked out front. You can see the neighboring properties. You can see graffiti. You have a really good sense of what the building, the neighborhood and even more importantly, the kind of people that live in that neighborhood are. So you have a really good sense without even having to drive or fly to the property, what that building in that neighborhood is going to be like. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing and the main takeaway for our listeners? The biggest mistake, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote this book, Billion Dollar Portfolio, the clients of mine that have been the most successful are the clients that were always buying they didn't make excuses. I've made a lot of excuses. The market's too hot. There's a, a recession's coming or we're in a recession. Or rents are dropping. At the end of the day, the guys and gals that did not make these excuses are the people that have these massive portfolios. They found a way to make deals work. Remember, deals are one-off. If you look at a property, the rents are low. It doesn't matter if the rents are dropping in the area. If the rents are already below market, no one's leaving. They're already getting a good deal. And typically when the economy is a mess is when the financing, at least the interest rates is the lowest. So you always have to keep buying and you have to have a better attitude than what I've had in the top of the market. I've seen people make money at all types of the market. Sure, the best time to buy is when the market's at the bottom, but that's typically three years out of every 10. I've seen tons of people get amazingly wealthy buying buildings in the other seven years, even the top of the market. There's always deals to be had. So that's my advice. Keep digging. You have to dig harder when the market's hot, but there are deals out there. Perfect. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? 
Well, after doing brokerage for 22 years, I've kind of conquered every brokerage milestone I needed to conquer. So really, it's really more about expanding on the real estate portfolio that I've bought and buying more buildings and just trying to grow that because that's my, you know, that's my exit plan. That's my retirement. No brokerage company has a company 401k, right? I mean, we're all here trying to make a buck and trying to find a way to create our lifelong cash flow business model. So that's, you know, that's where things are headed. And my goal is to try to keep expanding on that and to not, you know, quote unquote, make excuses and why it's not the right time. That's the whole purpose really of that book was to really watch what my clients did, understand how they did it and get myself there as well as to help people like your listeners and you guys to get there as well. And finally, where can people find out more about you? They can call me 310-621-8221. They can email me Sprinkle Apartments, that's S-P-R-E-N-K-L-E, apartments with an S at the end at gmail.com. They can also go to Amazon and buy my book, which goes on sale actually tomorrow. That's called Billion Dollar Portfolio. Perfect. Well, great. Brent, thanks for sharing your knowledge and experience with us all today. Thanks, Lolita. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for coming on. This was great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to aptcapitalgroup.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode.